You know, C.S. Lewis once wrote, and I want to read to you this statement of his. It's fairly lengthy, but I think this is very, very, really sets the stage for what we're going to look at this morning. He wrote this. He said, the, far, the faint, far-off results of those energies which God's creative rapture implanted in matter when he made the worlds are what we now call physical pleasures. And even thus filtered, they are too much for our present management. What would it be to taste at the fountainhead that stream of which even these lower reaches prove so intoxicating? Yet that, I believe, is what lies before us. The whole man is to drink joy from the fountain of joy. The New Testament has a lot to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our cross in order to follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that it's a bad thing to desire one's, one, one's own good and earnestly hope for enjoyment, it is because it has crept in from the teachings of Immanuel Kant and the ancient Stoics. Certainly it has no part in the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. And this is the part of the quote I want you to hear this morning. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy has been offered to us. We are far too easily pleased. Like an ignorant child who goes on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. I know that was a fairly long quotation. But did you follow what he's saying? As human beings, we live life only half-heartedly pursuing the deluded pleasures which spring from God himself. Telling ourselves that the pleasure we experience is not only sufficient, but that it is really all there is. But the gospel of Jesus Christ shatters our illusions, showing us that there is joy that is unspeakable and filled with glory for which we have been made. And we ought to admit, in the words of Augustine, O Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. As we continue in Acts chapter 14, we find two related encounters between the Christian missionaries and pagan Gentiles in the city of Lystra. The first is an example of genuine faith in Christ and the power of the gospel. And the second is one of rebellion, idolatry, and willful ignorance. When taken together, these accounts ought to give us a renewed sense of compassion for the lost and greater wisdom as we strive to be faithful in sharing the gospel. Let's look at this passage beginning in Acts chapter 14 and verse 5. Luke tells us this, when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, that's Paul and Barnabas. 
They became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding region. And and they were preaching the gospel there. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leapt and walked. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought out oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. This passage is really fascinating to me in many ways. There's an interesting detail here at the very beginning of the passage that I want to mention. It relates to the setting of the account and to Luke's historical accuracy. I've told you several times as we've gone through so far the first, almost the first half of the book of Acts that uh, the, the historical details of Acts have often come under very close and critical scrutiny And many people have denied the authenticity of the book on the basis of perceived archaeological and historical inaccuracies. It's an easy way for someone who wants to disbelieve the truths of Scripture to to discredit Scripture by saying, well, it's inaccurate. And if you've talked to anyone about the gospel who's a skeptic or who's doubts, who doubts and doesn't believe the truth, you probably have heard objections about Scripture's inaccuracies and how how, how many flaws it has, and all of the contradictions. But there's a detail here that's really important to point out to you. Maybe the next time that someone tries to object to the inaccuracy of Scripture, you can bring them to this passage, if you can remember it. In verse 6, Luke says that Lystra and Derby were cities of Lyconia. And in that passage, they were in, prior to that, if you remember, they were in Iconium, and They left there because they were driven out. And Luke says that they went to the region of Lyconia, the cities of Lystra and Derbe. And he implies that it was a different region from the region of Iconium. But the thing that makes this a little bit tricky is that the historical records show us that Iconium was actually a city of Lyconia, just like Lystra and Derbe. And so there, for for many years, in fact, many modern scholars had assumed that this was a point of error in Luke's record. Clearly, Luke didn't understand and he made a mistake in indicating that they left one region and went to another when they really hadn't. But, as is really not uncommon, the more that we research, the more that we learn and discover, we find nuances of detail in Luke's account that are 
Very accurate indeed. And this is one of those details. Sir William Ramsey um, has studied extensively the archaeology and history of the book of Acts. And he originally was skeptical of Luke and his account for this reason, because he knew that the records say that Iconium is a city in Lyconia, just like Lystra and Derby. But then, as he began to research it more in detail, he found out a detail that most people don't know, which was that the city of Iconium was in the region of Lyconia. I know these names don't help, do they? It makes it hard to follow. It was in that region of Lyconia prior to 37 AD, and again after 72 AD. But for a period of 35 years, this city of Iconium was not a part of the province of Lyconia. In other words, for the exact window of time in which Luke claims that Paul and Barnabas were there, and the exact period of time in which Luke was writing about these things and researching these things, the detail about the region in which Iconium and Lystria and Derby were found was very accurate. Luke's statement was accurate only for a period of 35 years. That, that time window is it. Very small. Maybe, maybe you say, okay, pastor, get it. Let's move on. This is a small, unimportant detail. But I want to, to point it out because it demonstrates one more time that Scripture is an accurate and trustworthy account of history. And that our knowledge of history and archaeology are not complete. And that as we learn more, what do we see is more and more often we find that this was true all along and we should have just listened. And we should have simply taken Luke's account because Luke knew what he was talking about. At any rate, Paul and Barnabas left the region of Phrygia and Pamphylia, where Iconium was located, and the city of Antioch that they had left behind before. They entered into the region of Lyconia, we're told there in verse 6, the cities of Lystra and Derbe. And specifically here, they've entered now the city of Derbe, and they begin to preach the gospel. It's not surprising. This is what Paul and Barnabas do, right? In fact, that's what all missionaries do, right? They go and preach the gospel. That's for the missionaries to do, right? We had Dwayne out here on Wednesday night. It was a great time. Um, one thing I noticed about him, though, is he doesn't tell a story from beginning to end. He just, it's like a, it's not a line. Like he starts at point A and he goes all the way to, you know, the story doesn't follow that way. It's like a cloud of information. And somewhere in there, the line of the story kind of works through there. It's just, he's always around it. He's just not always on the story. But anyways. Yeah, that's for the missionaries. Right? That, that's, that's Dwayne Ott's job, right? That's Paul and Barnabas' job. Well, we've not so much. They began to preach the gospel. It's interesting because there's no indication here that they were in a synagogue. No mention at all in the city of Lystra of a synagogue. And so apparently Paul and Barnabas were preaching in some sort of marketplace. Probably a marketplace, an open-air forum, most likely. Luke doesn't give us a lot of details about how things started. They, they preached the gospel here, and, and, it, and it was at least received positively by some of the people. Because we're told that there was a man there in the city of Lystra who heard, uh, who heard what Paul was preaching and apparently believed it. And of course, we read there in verses 8 and 9 about this man who was sitting there 
crippled. He heard it. Verse 9, we're told that, that he heard Paul speaking and that he also was observed to have, had, to have faith. So here's at least one person who listened, who received the gospel. If we were to skip down to verse 20, we find that there's actually a group of disciples in the city. And so this initial preaching of the gospel must have been received by at least some of the people. The events of verses 19 and 20, by the way, probably take place sometime a little bit later. We'll get to that next week. But I want to see, first of all, this crippled man and his faith. Verses 8 through 10. Paul, Luke says, And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leapt and walked. <laughs> I, I don't know about you, but one of the first things that, that really caught my eye as I read these verses was how Luke emphasizes the nature of the man's infirmity. Right? He says he was without strength in his feet. He was a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. Why would Luke go to such great lengths to describe the man's handicap? I mean, you think he wants us to get that this guy doesn't walk anywhere. Okay. Three, three times in the space of one verse here, he tells us this guy is a cripple. Three times in three different ways, he makes it very clear to us that this man is not walking anywhere. Never has, never will. I think what Luke is trying to make very clear here is that this was not a staged healing. It wasn't one of those situations where, you know, he healed somebody with one leg that was shorter than the other, you know, or, or some sort of vague, undiagnosed, mysterious pain or, or, or illness that, you know, that, that, that he could say he healed them and it couldn't be either confirmed or denied. Like so many so-called healers today. You see, even with such great limitations of science and medicine that they had in their day, we recognize that. They, we, we've seen many advancements in those areas. But even in that simple time, if you will, it was very clear Abundantly clear that this man had a serious infirmity which would require miraculous intervention. There was no medical way that he was going to be healed. And he couldn't have faked it. This is not someone who was staged. This was not a, a person who was, you know, sitting in the audience who was a prop. This is someone who everyone in Lystra knew. He probably sat in the marketplace every day begging. He'd been crippled from childhood, from birth. He says, from the mother's womb. He had never walked, not one time in his entire life. This was someone, there was no doubt about it. This man was incapable of walking. And I think that's why Luke goes to such great length to make us understand. This was not a fake. It was not a fraud. If this had been a setup, everyone in town would have known because this guy was the real thing and everyone knew it. Virtually impossible to fake this without this fraud being discovered. But, but it's interesting because I think really in many ways that this circumstance is very similar to John chapter 9. In verse 3, there was a blind man that Jesus healed. 
And if you remember, the disciples asked Jesus a question about that man. And Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. You see, the man that Jesus met who had been born blind, Jesus said the reason that he was born blind was so that the works of God could be revealed in him. And I think the same exact thing has taken place here. There's a man in this city of Lystra who was born crippled, unable to walk, without strength in his feet. Why? So that years later, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas would come to this city and the works of God would be revealed in this man. As Paul says to him, stand up straight on your feet. This was a divine appointment in order to show the people of Lystra that God's word could be trusted. Luke says something interesting here. He says that Paul looked at him intently. He observed him intently. And he saw that he had faith to be healed. In fact, the word translated healed in the New King James Version here is the same word translated elsewhere to be saved or to be delivered. I think when Luke is describing this man's faith, I think what he is saying is this man had not just faith to heal his legs or his feet. This man had true saving faith. And that Paul's healing of this man's body was simply a demonstration uh, of the power of Christ to forgive sins. You know, Jesus did a miracle like that once. We won't look there, but you can look in Mark chapter 2, verses 5 through 12 and read about it. Where Jesus said to the man, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees said, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus said, okay. Well, they didn't say that. They thought it in their hearts. And Jesus said, which is harder? Is it harder for me to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise up and walk? And he said, so that you will know that I have the power to forgive sins. He looked to the man and he said, rise up and walk. And the man did. And I think that's the exact same situation here. This was faith in Jesus Christ. Saving faith. The faith to forgive sins was the same faith that produced healing here. In this man. And of course, the man, how did the man come to faith in Christ? Well, it's real simple in the passage here. It tells us. The first part of verse 9, before it says that Paul observed his faith, it says this man heard Paul speaking. The first thing was he heard the preaching of the gospel. And in hearing the gospel, that produced faith. And then Paul told him, stand up. Stand up straight on your feet. What a ridiculous thing to say to someone who is crippled, who's been that way since birth. What a heartless thing to say. How cruel it must be. And certainly if it were any other power but the power of Jesus Christ, it would be cruelty. Because it could do nothing to help. But when Paul says to him, stand up on your feet straight, Knowing that the power of Christ was going to heal this man, it is a wonderful faith-giving, faith-building instruction. And so what did the man do? He obeyed. And this is not surprising. The The whole methodology of this is not surprising at all. He heard the word that Paul preached. He had faith. 
When Paul instructed him what to do, he obeyed. Why? Because true faith always produces obedience. And this example is no exception. This man's obedience was rooted in his faith in Christ, and it resulted in an immediate and total healing. Notice what he did when Paul said, stand up straight on your feet. He didn't, he did, I guess he didn't really obey. He didn't stand up straight on his feet. He leapt and started walking around. In fact, the, the, the construction of this, of this sentence here is that he began leaping and walking. It suggests an ongoing thing. I don't think the guy jumped up and then sort of, oh, this is cool. I think he was... He was going, man. He was jumping around. He was walking. He was excited. Okay. And then wouldn't you be, right? He was the man who had, who had obeyed because of the faith that he had. He knew what Paul was saying was true because he heard the gospel and he believed it. And so when Paul said, stand up, he did. And immediately he was completely healed. No delay. No need for therapy. No need to learn to walk as a child must learn to walk. This man had never walked. Anybody have a, have a child that went from sitting and laying on the floor to just walking? Just stood up and started walking one day? No. There's a process of learning that takes place, right? We have to, you know, the, the child get, they have to crawl and they start to pull themselves up on things and stumble and fall and maybe, maybe you know, hold things and kind of stumble along as they're holding on to something. And eventually they begin to develop the balance and there's a, whole, there's a whole process of things that take place in their brain and in their body as they learn. To walk. None of that happened here. None of it. This man who had never once walked, not only was his body healed, but he was made as if he had always been walking. Total and complete healing here. Nobody could deny what had happened. And nobody did. But, and this is where this passage takes a turn that is challenging and I think in many ways sad. They didn't deny the healing, but they denied the true source of the power that they had seen. If you look at verse 11... Immediately after the healing, verse 11 says, Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in the front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. The people of Lystra recognized the miraculous nature of this healing. And they rightly assumed this power to be divine. But their reaction showed that they remained ignorant of the true God. They concluded that Paul and Barnabas were gods in human form. And you can almost imagine the people of the city began to cry out, The gods have come down to earth in the likeness of men. And the crowd began to shout. And no doubt the priest of Zeus in the temple outside the city could hear it. And he heard this shout, this cry coming up from the city. And being a good priest, he knew what to do. He got a couple of oxen ready. Garlands with which to decorate these animals as they 
led them out to the sacrifice. Who would miss, who would miss an opportunity to sacrifice to the gods? Right. Apparently, Paul and Barnabas didn't really realize right away what was happening. Luke explains why here, because they, they cried out in the Lyconian language. So this was a native language of the region that Paul and Barnabas clearly did not know. They would have spoken Greek, and everyone would have understood Greek, because that was the, the language of Rome. But this Lyconian language, they didn't know what was taking place. The people looked at Paul and Barnabas, and they concluded that Barnabas was the chief of the gods. That's Zeus. And that Paul was one of the lesser gods. Hermes, who served as the spokesman. I guess Paul liked to talk. I don't know. I feel like I have a kinship with him now. <laughs> Maybe Barnabas was old. It's hard to say exactly why they assumed this. Because Hermes, uh, in Greek mythology, was, the, was the, the god who created language. And so the... Um, JV, you might appreciate this. If you, study, if you take class in hermeneutics... The word hermeneutics is related to the name of the god Hermes. It's where it comes from because it's the study of understanding and interpreting language. Okay? And, and ultimately we apply it to scripture. But, but Hermes was the speaker. He was the spokesman. And Zeus apparently as the, as the more important god, he didn't, want to, he didn't have to say, put, put, the, put Hermes to work for him. That was kind of the idea. So they must have assumed that Barnabas was really the one in charge and Paul was the one who was just the mouthpiece. Whatever it was, whatever reason they did that, that's what the people concluded. They began to bring out these animals to sacrifice them. And Paul and Barnabas didn't, I don't think, knew what, knew what was going on until they saw these animals. And they could recognize a pagan worship service that was about to start. They could see that coming on. They could tell by the way these animals were decorated and by what they were doing that they were preparing to offer sacrifices. And they realized what was taking place. And of course, this entire situation was nothing other than pagan superstition. You know, there's an ancient myth from this, from this region of Lyconia and Phrygia that says that Zeus and Hermes uh, once came down to earth in human form and that they, they went house by house to see if anyone would receive them. And that no one received them except for one elderly couple who lived in a very small cottage who invited them in and, and in fact gave them the food from their own table. Sacrificed their own food in, or, in order to give it to these gods and, and gave it to them. And the gods were so impressed by that that they, they rewarded the elderly couple by converting their home into a, a, a grand temple with a golden roof and marble columns. And then they sent a great flood to destroy all of the homes of all of the people in the region who refused to allow them uh, to show hospitality to them. And this myth was probably in the minds of these people. And they thought to themselves, we better not make the same mistake our ancestors made. We don't want our homes destroyed. We better make sure that we honor these gods who have come to us. And so this fearful and superstitious mind was determined to exalt and worship these men. And, and I think in a way that we read a passage like this, it's very easy for us to kind of just gloss over it because we're not like this today. I mean, we don't worship things, right? And we don't make gods of things. And we don't offer sacrifices to those gods. We don't do any of that, right? 
See, we're too enlightened and modern and civilized to act this way. I think we should remember that Romans 1 tells us that this kind of idolatry and false worship is the universal response of mankind when confronted with the power and presence of God. Keep your finger in Acts 15. I want to read those verses to you. They're important. Romans 1, beginning in verse 18, the Apostle Paul says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest to them. In other words, it is on display. It is clear. He says, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible oh, I lost my place made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things Paul says listen it's not it's not an issue of man not seeing God it's that when we saw God instead of worshiping him as God and exalting him we replaced him with ourselves and with animals and other images for us to bow down and worship. And that's exactly what these people were doing. And I would submit to you that's exactly what we do today. That's exactly what men and women do today. Yes, in our modern, enlightened, uh, civilized society, we make gods of anything we can worship. Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 3, He says, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. We may not bring out oxen to slaughter and sacrifice to our gods today, but we're just as much in bondage. Men and women who are lost and in bondage to their sin today just as much as they were here. So the question is, how did Paul and Barnabas respond to these pagans' attempt to ignorantly worship them as gods? And is there anything we can learn by how they reacted to the circumstances? Let's look at their reaction. Verse 14. When the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. It's interesting to compare the missionaries' response here to Herod's response back in Acts chapter 12. Do you remember what happened there? The crowds began exalting Herod as a god. Remember when he was 
standing before them in his silver robe and the sunlight was shining, reflecting off of him. And they said, it's not the voice of a man, but of a God. And what did Herod do? He reveled in it. He refused to turn and give glory to God. He accepted their worship. All of that done with arrogance as if he, a man, could stand in the place of God. And we know what happened in Acts 12. He suffered an immediate and painful divine judgment that ended up destroying him. And how did Paul and Barnabas react? In completely the opposite manner. There's three things that they did that I, I wanted to take note of. In verse 14, we're told that they tore their clothes It doesn't mean that they ripped their clothes off. It means they tore the seams of their clothes. This was a symbol of grief and outrage. It was very common in that uh, that Middle Eastern culture. Especially when someone saw or heard blasphemy. In fact, it's exactly what the, the high priest did when Jesus was on trial. When Jesus equated himself with the Father. And the high priest tore his clothes and said, we don't need any more witnesses. He's blasphemed. Of course, the high priest there was acting out theater, really. But in this case, this was Paul and Barnabas trying to demonstrate that, hey, this is wrong. And so they tore their clothes and they ran into the middle of the crowd. The second thing that we find that they did is they refused to accept the people's worship. In verse 15, they, they, they proclaimed, hey, we're nothing more than ordinary men. Reminds me of what Peter said in Acts chapter 10, verses 25 and 26 to Cornelius. When he showed up at Cornelius' door and Cornelius bowed down to him and Peter said, no, get up. I'm just an ordinary man. Peter also very conscious to avoid receiving worship. Interesting study you can do if you go through Scripture and study out angels. Anytime angels come down to earth and they interact with men. Almost universally, the statements that they make to men are not to worship them. Men will fall down to worship the angels and the angels will say, No, stand up. And will we'll refuse the worship. So Paul and Barnabas did. They refused Worship. But the third thing they did is they directed the people's attention to God. The true God who rightly deserves to be worshipped. I asked early if there was anything that we could learn from the missionaries' response to these pagans. And I actually think there are several things that we should take from this. The first thing I want you to notice is the attitude with which they responded was one of humble concern. They didn't consider themselves worthy of adoration, of the adoration of men. Even though they had performed miracles. And they had preached to thousands. There's a lot of Christian preachers and teachers today who could take a lesson in humility from Paul and Barnabas. Just because you draw a large crowd doesn't make you worthy of worship and exaltation. And these men were very careful to avoid being made the objects of someone else's worship. But I would say this also applies in another way. 
Their humility expressed itself in a genuine concern for these lost people. You see, they, they could have just let them do whatever they're going to do. I mean, these guys are pagans. Let them, hey, well, whatever they want to do, let them do it. They're lost. It doesn't matter. They're sinful. Why We wouldn't expect, right? I mean, I've heard Christians say this, we shouldn't expect unbelievers to do anything other than act like unbelievers. And I even said it myself in certain contexts. And it's true in a sense, yeah, they're unbelievers. Okay, we shouldn't be surprised when they act like unbelievers. But that doesn't mean that we just ignore whatever they do and say, eh, it doesn't matter, they're unbelievers, let them do whatever they want to do. It doesn't mean that we as Christians isolate ourselves from our society and say, eh, it doesn't matter what happens outside these four walls. Because everybody says, oh, those are all unbelievers anyways. They're going to do what they want to do. Probably. Probably our influence will be limited. But it doesn't mean we should just sit back and say, well, now if they were Christians, then we might say something. But, hey, you know, we don't want to interfere. They can do whatever they want to do, and it's okay. They have a right. And Paul and Barnabas could have said that. They didn't, though. And I think it's because they had a genuine compassion that was born out of a, a spirit of humility. How do those two things go together? I, let me explain it this way. They saw these people as, as, as ones whose eyes were blinded by their sinful culture, and they were truly in bondage to the elements of the world. And Paul's goal in preaching to them was to open their eyes to the true God and to warn them that the judgment was coming. And I think that his preaching was motivated not by a sense of superiority. See, we don't, we don't preach to people about the gospel and warn them about judgment because we're better than them. We don't. We're not. We don't look at the city of Elkhorn and, the, and Walworth County and say, well, us in this church, we're better than all of you people and we know the right way. And guess what? If you're, if you're nice, we'll tell you how to get there. That kind of attitude has no place. See, Paul and Barnabas understood the power of sin to deceive the mind. Don't forget that Paul himself had once been completely deceived concerning the person and work of Jesus Christ. And even though Paul had seen miraculous things, even though Paul had seen evidence and seen incredible things happen in Jerusalem and among the Christians, he was still unconvinced. And he was still deceived and captive to the sin that had enslaved him for so long. You see, remembering the power of sin to enslave and to blind us to the truth can help us to look with humility and compassion on those who have lived their entire lives under that deception of idolatry. And to preach to them the gospel, not out of a sense of superiority, but with a genuine concern for them as ones who have been deceived, who ought to be pitied because they have been captured and held captive. And so I think the first thing that we see is this attitude of, of humility and concern that, that, that we see emphasized. The second thing is 
I want you to notice the content of their message was based on Scripture, but it was presented in the form of the common ground of self-evident truths. In fact, I would suggest to you that their message provides a simple yet effective model for us to follow as we preach the gospel to a world that has been totally given over to idolatry. They proclaimed God as the living creator who made everything that exists. They also preached him as the patient judge who mercifully allows the nations to live as they please throughout history. But they also preached as God as the sovereign Lord who has revealed himself in the goodness with which he blesses all men. Well, let's look at these three elements here and we'll finish up. And Paul begins by declaring that the true God is alive and powerful. And that's what he says here uh, in verse, uh, verse 15. He says, we preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God. The one who has created us, by definition, has the right to command our obedience and worship. Which is why men dispute God's role as the creator today. Just as they have for all of human history. You see, instead of worshiping the one who is truly worthy of glory, Paul here says that we follow useless things. That's how he describes them. And isn't that the truth? How many people do you know today whose lives revolve around things that are completely useless, which cannot last and do not offer any true meaning or purpose. They are, as Randy Alcorn puts it, experts in the trivial and novices in the significant. And so Paul says we ought to turn from these useless things to the true and living creator, God. But Paul expected, I, I assume, that someone might object to this statement and someone might say, hey, if, if this living creator you speak of truly exists, how come he has never judged us for worshiping other gods? If he really exists, how come he has allowed us to do as we please without ever stopping, it, without ever stopping us? If he really cares about what we do, how come he's never said it? And so Paul continued by emphasizing the patient forbearance of God. Notice here, there in verse 15, he talks about God as the creator, right? The living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them. God is the creator, Paul says. But then he says that in bygone generations, he allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. He allowed it, Paul says. And Paul emphasizes here the patient forbearance of God who is the righteous judge. He says that God has allowed the nations to choose their own way throughout history. Well, this is a very important point for us to understand because the fact that God has not stepped into history to judge the world yet doesn't mean that he is impotent, but that he is patient. It's a good thing too. But... If God allowed the nations in bygone generations to walk in their own way, 
Doesn't that suggest, at least the way Paul words it, doesn't that suggest that he will not continue to allow them to do so indefinitely? You see this, Paul's not saying that God lets, has let people off the hook. You know, he's allowed people to live as they please and, you know, we, well, that's just really letting them off the hook. He's not judged people. That's not what Paul's saying. In fact, what Paul is saying is that there is a, there is a basis for their judgment before God. And God's mercy and God's patience has established that foundation. One author said it this way, All through the ages, God was fully aware of what they were doing, but he permitted them to live in sin. They chose their own way of life and thus must take full responsibility for their actions. The period of ignorance has come to an end. Now, with the proclamation of the good news by the apostles. But Paul says, listen, God, in times past, has allowed you to live as you please. He has granted you the freedom to choose to rebel and sin. But we're here today to tell you that that is not right. And that ultimately God is not, he's not ignoring you. He's simply waiting patiently. You see, by proclaiming the true God to them, Paul was actually increasing their guilt. Because now that they've heard the gospel, they have to either choose to believe or be damned. And yet, there might be an objection to this. These Gentiles might plead ignorance. They might say, listen, we had no idea that what we were doing was wrong. All we were doing is what our parents taught us to do. It's not our fault. Have you ever heard anyone say anything like that? Well, what about somebody who's raised in a Muslim country and they're, 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 that's the only thing they've ever known? How could God possibly expect them to choose right? How could God possibly hold them accountable for that? It's not their fault. It's how they were raised. But Paul's response to that objection is that no one can claim that God failed to leave a witness. And what is the witness that God has left? Paul says rain. He says rain, right? Verse 17, he says he did good. He gave us rain from heaven. And what does rain produce? Jim, what does rain produce when it falls on the fields? Crops. Fruitful harvest, he says, right? We've had abundance. Why? Because God has given us rain. Because God has been good to us. He's given us rain. He's produced fruit. Paul says this is evidence of God as the sovereign Lord. Who didn't just create the world, but who continues to provide and pour out his goodness on mankind. The truth is, it's not the knowledge of God which man is missing. It's the will and the desire to acknowledge him as Lord. Russell Moore has said this, and I like this statement. There are no such things as cognitive atheists. Only sinners in deep denial of what they know to be true. And that truth is borne out in the people's response to Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas, we're told in verse 18, did 
prevent these people from sacrificing these two oxen. But it took everything that they could possibly say, every ounce of strength and courage they could muster to preach God to these people to convince them not to sacrifice. The resistance to this truth is so strong in the heart of man. That even as Paul and Barnabas are proclaiming the truth about God and who he is, about the judgment that's coming, the people still resisted. They still wanted to follow their own way and continue worshiping useless things. Even when we come face to face with who God is, man's sinful heart is often able to suppress and reject the truth. And so as we close this morning, I'd like to draw a couple of applications from this passage. So first, you might find yourself in the position of these people in Lystra. You've lived your life in rebellion against God, refusing to acknowledge Him as your Creator and Lord who has rightful claim over your life. You've refused to admit or come face to face with the terms that Scripture uses, the description of sinful men that, that, that you stand and I stand before God as guilty and condemned. Maybe you find yourself there this morning. You're like these pagans in Lystra, worshiping all of the pleasures of this life, refusing to see that there is infinite pleasure and joy in the one who created all of this. And yet you worship this instead. Even if you have never heard that before today, know that God's judgment is real. And He will not delay it forever. You will have to answer for him, to Him for how you have chosen to live your life. You can't claim ignorance. And just because He hasn't judged you yet doesn't mean He's not going to. But you have the opportunity today to deal with your guilt before you have to face the judgment. And Scripture teaches us and Paul and Barnabas certainly preached this, that Jesus Christ has already paid for your sin in His death on the cross. And He rose again to provide you with the hope of everlasting life. Most of you here this morning, almost all of you are familiar. The question, you've heard this before, you've heard it from me before. The question is this, will you believe the truth of the Word of God today and trust Jesus alone to be your Savior and your Lord. The second application from this passage that I want to bring to you is for those who have already trusted in Christ as their Savior. And Paul and Barnabas saw these Gentile pagans and saw how they responded to the power of Christ in the Gospel that healed that crippled man. And it burdened their hearts. It burdened their hearts to, to intervene. To not just allow them to continue on their way each day, going
going closer and closer to a Christless and condemned eternity. And it motivated Paul and Barnabas to preach the gospel. Do you realize that every person living today knows about God? They do. Every single person living today knows about God. The creation has revealed it to them. This passage is clear. Acts 17 is clear. Romans 1 is clear. No one can say, when, when they stand before God, no one will say, God, I didn't know. It was foolishness that led Bertrand Russell to say, when someone asked him, if you stand, if you die and you find out that God really is real and you stand before him, what will you say to him? And Bertrand Russell said, well, I'll ask him, how come he didn't give me enough evidence to believe in him? Nonsense. Foolishness. It wasn't lack of evidence that caused Bertrand Russell to be an atheist. It was a sinful, wicked, rebellious heart where he refused to acknowledge the truth that was right before him. His entire life staring him in the face. This is the reality. Every person alive today knows about God, but they have, most of them, have refused to believe it. They have suppressed the truth. And if you're a Christian, you and I used to be there, refusing to believe, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. That was us. This knowledge of God's power and divine nature is enough to condemn those who die without Christ even if they've never heard the gospel. But understand something. This knowledge is not enough for them to find new life in Christ. You say, is it possible that someone living in some remote place in the world who never heard the gospel could get saved? And I'll tell you this. Peter says in Acts chapter 4, there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. There's one way, and only one, and it's through Jesus Christ. And so we have a duty, a call, and an opportunity, because people all around us know about God. They know it, even if they don't want to admit it. They need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you have the message which can bring them life. Will you look on them with humble compassion? Will you tell them about the one who died for them? Even if they insist on worshiping useless things. That's what Paul and Barnabas did. That's what we need to do. Let's pray.